Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 151. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. I had to think about that. And together we run Hobart Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Mystery. Crime. Um, suspense. And thrillers. Welcome to the show. And it feels like we're accelerating towards Christmas. We are. That's because we are. Yes. And in our hands, well, I have, well, we both have um, some Glühwein, German mulled wine. Yes, from from a, a German supermarket. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and uh, a mince pie from said supermarket for me. So uh, Yeah, I don't like mince pies. No, well, I'm looking forward to that in a minute, but we, we should get into our into our show in, in a while. I do like mulled wine, though. So uh, just to mention, we have a guest this week. Yes, we do have a guest this week. Of course we do. The lovely... Natalie Chandler. Natalie Chandler will be joining us, and she is uh, published by one of the big uh, commercial publishers. Yeah, she's a bit of a success story, isn't she? She's yeah. another sort of, although it's a similar story on paper, write a book in lockdown, get an agent, yeah. get published. It's a different take on it completely. It's really fascinating, um, the process and the speed at which she was picked up, actually. Mm. And the I don't of, think I've known anyone to, that quickly. No, no, it's very, it's remarkable. Two books to date, then, uh, by Natalie. More we'll, to come. We will talk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's a secret, apparently. So we we don't know <laughs> who is or what. But it's uh, it's a good t- a good tale, and uh, we'll be speaking to her very shortly. Of course, we we deal with news in this first section of the show, and two stories stand out. Uh, one, you're going to roll your eyes, is about AI. <laughs> Uh, and I wanted to mention that um, one of the things that's been coming through in, in, in our interviews recently, um, and obviously something that we've been talking about in the pu- publishing world, is the prevalence of AI in terms of taking people's work, feeding it into their generative AI, large language model engines, whatever you want to call it, and thinking that's okay without any recompense to the creators. And they're doing this with music and they're doing it with art and they're doing it with published work. Yeah, I think it's because there are no um, – the, the legal restrictions haven't caught up yet, so they're doing it because they can. Yes, but there's also an element that legal restrictions haven't really caught up with the previous growth of big tech either. No, I know. I mean, it takes that, time. We're still fighting that. You know, there's still legislation threatened for all sorts of things. Um, and it hasn't really happened. And so the AI movement and companies are steaming ahead, claiming that there are illegal loopholes that they can exploit uh, and, you know, basically taking while they can. 
So um, what I wanted to bring your attention to um, was the Ameri- Association of American Publishers. Yeah. There's – essentially in America there is a uh, uh, an artificial intelligence proceeding currently being put together by the Copyright Office in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, Association of American Publishers, AAP, have sent in a very, very large document but they, uh, on their website, outline their principal concerns and things they want addressed. And I won't go through them all because there are quite a few. But um, the uh, they say I – mean, I'll pick two or three of their points, and uh, I'll read them verbatim. Big Tech petitions the government for cover from liability for their calculated disregard of authorship, also ignoring that rights holders today – already routinely license their works for all kinds of digital uses. Rather than working with copyright owners, these companies seek to appropriate literature and other intellectual, invaluable intellectual property for their own commercial gain and to bend the law to their will. Government should have no role in bestowing commercial advantages to AI companies at the expense of authors, publishers and creators. The companies that benefit from the commercialization of the technology should be required not only to compensate rights holders for their past ingestion of copyrighted works to train generative AI systems, but also for their ongoing and future use of protected works to train new generational AI systems or fine-tune their existing products. Generational AI developers are not struggling startups that need a boost from the government, they count, yeah, they count among their investors some of the largest and most profitable technology companies in the world and are valued in some instances between 80 to $90 billion. There is absolutely no public policy reason to create legal immunities for such companies who face only the reasonable requirement that they seek the consent of or licenses from rights holders whose works they use for training their generative AI systems. It would be a grave error to repeat the past policy mistakes that allowed technology companies to achieve such an unhealthy monopoly-like market dominance to the point that governments have struggled to curb their power despite repeated attempts to moderate their aggressive marketplace tactics. Pretty strong stuff. It is strong stuff, but isn't it a fact that governments are slightly reluctant to curb very powerful big businesses because... They, well, the tr- they benefit from big business. To, to a degree, yes. But uh, the biggest problem is how do you get consensus across the world? Oh, you can't. Because, you know, uh, and this is, the, this is the concern here, is that basically they will do what they – the robber barons of tech, if you want to describe them as such, will take what they want. They'll throw as much legal mud and – concrete at the at the situation <laughs> whatever you know not a concrete well you know they'll, I know you they'll, mean. they'll basically you know pull up their biggest defenses they could possibly do slow everything down and by then it's too late it's already too late really it is already too but late, i mean yeah. the fact is that someone recognized that 186,000 written titles have been used by one of these generative ais to teach it how to write mm. uh without <laughs> Any seeking of permission from any of the rights holders, and we're not talking about stuff that's out of copyright 70 years after the death of the author. We're not talking about that. We're talking about stuff that is current. Yeah, because current copyright law doesn't cover that. 
Right. It covers if you use so word for word, but you're not, are they're, you? They're talking about fair dealing and fair usage, and that's not appropriate. Because the current law, it is within fair use and fair dealing, if you look at the current copyright yes, law. Yes, so, you know. But I, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's de- yeah, it is. Anyway, so that's the AAP stance on it, and I think that, I think what they say is entirely fair. Oh, completely. Um, but unfortunately, you know, I think what we're, you're sensing from what we're saying is <laughs> yeah. that we'll believe it when we see it. Well, it's just too late. I mean, yeah. or by the time it comes into it's, effect, a lot has already unless, happened. Unless there is a group action which allows people who can prove that their stuff was ingested, they get paid. Well, they, that won't happen. No. It's that too, won't happen. Yeah. So that's a little, little depressing. Um, now, I wanted to sort of... You know, I have to say that um, the company we're going to talk about now have become, <laughs> so in my mind, really the worst offenders in terms of, uh, you know, basically they, they they damage the music industry to the point when hardly anybody makes any money unless you're touring. And now they, as we've discussed recently, have announced that they're going to move very, very strongly into the audiobook market by offering premium subscribers to Spotify. Yes, it's Spotify, um, who, although they have an awful lot of people who've come from the tech world over in California and that sort of thing working for them, and most of the people I ever hear talking about Spotify are from that kind of environment and background, they are actually a Swedish company. And they, if just to remind you people, own now Fideaway Voices. And they have until recently been uh, our main platform for Hobeck audiobooks to Find be away, published. Yeah. Find a way, pub- you know, and uh, not, not for much longer, I don't think. Uh, anyway, they have just announced that they're letting go 1,500 people worldwide. Now, they, they announced about 500 job cuts about six months before that. But this is a company that's lost uh, $500 billion, uh, sorry, $500 million. <laughs> that's a big difference. <laughs> yes, yeah, a massive difference. $500 million in the last few months um, because it is basically hemorrhaging money. And they moved into podcasting in a major way. Yeah, they did, yeah. Uh, that, at that vast well. expense, <laughs> and that's not gone well. That includes, um, you know, signing up. Harry and Megan to uh, to produce podcasts, which they barely did, and they flopped, and they've been released. Well, we're still waiting for the phone call. <laughs> yeah, but the um, the the challenge is is that they're now focusing on audiobooks as their next revenue stream, but they've let go of fifteen hundred people or are in the process of doing so. And indeed, uh, this week their chief financial officer was also fired. Um, it's not looking good no. for them. I mean, is that because of? like you're saying, uh, business reasons. Um... Well, they say that they're, they, they're going to... Uh, they've got too many people doing stuff that doesn't actually deliver product. Yeah, I was going to say that. Is it more of a efficiency? Well, that's what... I mean, I, I try to find the right phrase, but unfortunately my phone has decided not to cooperate and oh. <laughs> pull up the article that I'm after, uh, which is annoying. Um, perhaps if I, if I just put the... The microphone somewhere that I can still speak. Perhaps you can hold it for me. Yes. I can... See, I have a spare hand. Yeah, point it at my mouth. That'd be great. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I will, I will, I will dig around because he keeps going to the wrong thing. But anyway, Spotify. Right here we go. Article in the Guardian. Okay. Right. Right. So uh, the chief financial officer is leaving. Yes. Uh, just cashed in. This is Paul Vogel. 
uh, cashed in his stocks, $9.3 million worth <laughs> um, of shares. So it's not like he's going down the job centre tomorrow then? But um, he sold them, uh, but only after he announced the, the job losses. <laughs> I wonder right? why. And so suddenly the value oh, of the stock went up. Yeah, the value of the stock went up, right, as a result. And then he sold them. And so he profited from the, you know, from the knowledge of the job cuts. Yeah. Um, and so it's, that's a, I mean, you know, let's put those in perspective. That's a fifth of the Spotify workforce that's being released. Oh, okay. That actually makes a big difference saying that because that, yeah, that's and yeah significant. And he's leaving in March, but, uh, you know, he's leaving under something. That would be cloud. like you sacking my leg. Yeah. In Hobeck terms. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, I mean, they have, look, they have increased their subscriber base from 124 million to 226 million in the last three years. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, uh, it, it's, they're talking about Daniel Eck is the co-founder of, of Spotify, and they're talking about now, over time, we've come to the conclusion that Spotify is entering a new phase and needs a new chief financial officer with a different mix of experiences. <laughs> oh, I love those sort of... <laughs> As a result, we've decided to part ways, but I'm very appreciative of the steady hand that Paul has provided in supporting the expansion of our business through a global pandemic and unprecedented economic uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, they're... They're trying to uh, get to the point where they're getting to a 40% gross margin and a 20% operating margin. Oh, and, right, okay. Uh, yeah, making a profit for the first time. And um, that isn't happening at the moment. So what it feels like to me, and this is um, this is the problem, is that when a big company like that decides that its strategy is going to be X, it just steams into that market. So music being one... And uh, then it was podcasting that flopped, and now it's audiobooks is the solution to our problems. Yeah, we'll get loads like of people that, subscribing because they're going to get fifteen hours free, uh, which will cover pretty much fifty. That's interesting. Seventy percent of the titles out there. I listen to audiobooks, but I haven't felt the need to rush out for fifteen hours because they choose the fifteen not the fifteen hours you personally pick, but they choose what you can pick from. Don't yes, they? they do. Yeah, and. That would put me off, actually. I'd want to be able to pick anything. Right. It's a, it's a limited offer. I mean, you know, it's it's like buy one, get one free or something. You know, it, you know, you might be persuaded to buy something you normally wouldn't buy because it's a bit more of a bargain. But, Maybe. But I don't think that the audiobook market is ready or sustainable. No, I don't think it's... And yeah. I don't think from a creator's point of view, there's enough money being you know no one knows what the terms are no. i mean how do you get re- any form of remuneration from their freebie well, you know they'd have to pay you a flat fee i think to use your well but i, I don't know i don't i don't know. know i don't know we don't know i mean they haven't made they've done this deal with major publishers but not with anybody else yeah so they've but probably they bought, paid them something but in find a way they they now own you know uh, a platform they took away arbitrarily your ability to sell your own audiobooks on your website they just did that Mm, I know, the, that affected us because we, we yeah. did have that. Um, so cut. that's now, you know, the only way you can do it is to drive everybody towards Spotify. So, you know, it's they're not honest brokers in this and they are just, you know, running fast and loose for their own benefit. So, yeah, Spotify cutting 1,500 jobs. Uh, and look, I, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I went to a, 
a session that they ran at the podcast show in London earlier this year, and it was a shambles. Um, it was a load of old gobbledygook, you know, West Coast American gobbledygook, dressed up as, you know, uh, what people wanted to hear. These were all podcast makers in the audience. And half of the audience walked out before the end of the session. In, within 40 minutes, the, you know, the place was just emptying out. I've never seen anything like it. Do you subscribe to Spotify? No. I do, you see. And the reason is, is because at Christmas, mm. I like to play what's called Mother's Christmas Song List in the car. Right. Well, look, I, I, I have just cancelled a load of subscriptions to things like Apple Music. Cut that. Don't need it. I, I still have it Amazon, but only through Amazon Prime. So I can't access all of the catalogue. That's enough for me. I probably don't need Spotify, really. No, no, you probably don't. And and um, you know, I've I've cut uh, Netflix is going in January. Uh, there's a couple of other things that I've cut recently. Yeah, but but I mean, with Netflix, if because I've got Netflix, so you know, you cutting doesn't mean you won't have access to things on Netflix. Well, the trouble you is, just won't be able to take it to the toilet. You go through this. I mean, I've got feast and famine on Netflix. Yeah, where, I do actually. <laughs> where you know, the crown arrives. Yeah, I'll watch that. Um, there'll be a couple of other things maybe a year that I'm really into and that would justify that. But there's probably three months at a go where I won't watch anything. Yeah, no, exactly the same as me. It's, um, it's interesting. And, and you know, a lot of these, I mean, I have been probably subscribing to pretty much every service at some point in my life. And, you know, Disney Plus is another one where once you've done the Star Wars content, if that's what you're into, you're bored. And all those shows have gone off off the boil big time. So that's going. Um, it's it's you know the, the nature of these streamers they're they're all trying to find a sweet spot uh, to drive an audience and get people to subscribe. But the trouble is, people haven't got the money. No, so it is one easy thing all to the cut. time all the time to consume everything. Well, all the oh I see what you mean all the time. Yeah, no, I certainly don't have the time to consume everything. No. Okay, well look, I mean you know. I just think I watch anything that uh, it's it's awful of me, but it's like um, when you support a particular football team, you want everyone else to lose around you, and I'm uh, you know, and I feel like just I want Spotify to suffer <laughs> at the moment. I really do. I think they're really behaving appallingly. But then that's true of a lot of those big companies. I suppose moment. I could buy a now Christmas CD, couldn't I? Instead, you could do that. Yes. And that is entirely... Because my car still that, has a CD player. And that would allow some of those artists to make a little extra money. That would be lovely. Okay, we'll you talk... You can thank me later, Paul We'll be McCartney. talking... Yeah. <laughs> we'll be talking music um, after we have spoken to Natalie. And uh, it, it was lovely to speak to Natalie Chandler about, you know, her journey to publication. And again, it's one of these cases where lockdown really has unleashed a lot of people's creativity, gave them the opportunity to to write their first book. And, and it seems like every week we speak to somebody who's done this now. Um, and, Indeed. You know, it, it, it is lovely. So uh, let us uh, delve into the world of Natalie Chandler. What an absolute pleasure it is to speak to Natalie Chandler. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. Thank you very much for having me. It's really fantastic. And um, like um, actually quite a few of our guests in recent weeks, it's another wonderful tale of lockdown having a benefit and it's funny because yeah. it's the day that we we've got boris johnson sitting at the inquiry as we speak to you um blathering away well, now <laughs> no i mean he's just finished for the day but he's got another day tomorrow 
And it kind of, you know, takes you back to all the dark stuff. But the good stuff is people like yourself having an opportunity to have the time to fulfill a lifetime's ambition and writing a book and then getting it published. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, it certainly was a dream come true. And uh, yeah, like you said, lockdown was just an opportunity that you'd never imagined that you get, just the opportunity to write full time. Yeah, and it's something, I mean, you, you, you talk about, you know, always wanting to be a writer and always mm-hmm. writing, um, even from the age of seven. I think that's when I started, actually. I started writing a space saga because I was into Star Wars and Doctor Who at the time. And I did oh. Pen- Penny and the Cat was my first book. Of course, yeah, we've got, we've got that <laughs> knocking around somewhere. But then you uh, were inspired by Roald Dahl. Yes, very much so, yeah. I was writing knockoffs of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for a couple of years and my dad very gently trying to tell me you can't do this. I'm like, of course I can. So yeah, when, when, when did not? you take the story? I mean, you know, we've got the glass elevator and, and whatever else. Where, where did you take, did you report Charlie as a protagonist? No, I don't think I did. I basically just plagiarised the entire thing and just rewrote it how I wanted it to go. Yeah. <laughs> and not in a very progressive way at all. So no, I, no imagination at all at that point, just a complete rip off of his plot. So you, I'm quite. I'm quite glad I learned how to think of my own ideas eventually. But in a way, though, it was it was your love of writing. You just and in a way, it's an easy way to write, isn't it? Just sort of recreate a plot with your own words. Yes, and I still suppose... allowing yourself to sort of go off into that land of yes, and you've got sort of almost that safety net of learning how to use the characters that have already been created, and you know the amazing things that have been done by those other authors, and sort of use that as your inspiration as well. I suspect that Roald Dahl actually would have, you know, if it had been his choice, he'd have just nodded it through and went, good on you. Um, I'd like to think he would have been absolutely fine with it. If I'd have yeah, yeah, I think he would. Well, he's such a, de- I mean, he was such a, de- it's funny because I, I spoke to at length to Barry Cunningham at one stage, he runs Chicken House Books, which is a, a children's imprint now, but is most famous in publishing for signing J.K. Rowling for Bloomsbury. Oh, right. But, before that, when he was quite a young man, uh, or younger man, I suppose, he was a publicist for Roald Dahl and would go out on these book tours in the in the 70s. And um, he said it was quite a tricky operation because Roald uh, enjoyed a drink and there would be times when the children would line up for a book signing and he would decide to be absolutely despicable and use all the wrong language and all that sort of thing. Um, so... It was uh, it was a he was a frisky client. Yes, um, my mum actually nursed. I think uh, something like the nephew of old Dole once. Right, but anyway, <laughs> a tricky a tricky guy. But nonetheless, I mean, I think you know, if we were to sort of line up all the people that have been on our podcast, and this is episode one hundred and fifty-one, I reckon that about a, at least a fifth would pay homage to the man oh at least mm, yeah more than that, i reckon yeah. i think enid blighton's the other one they pay homage to she is definitely my other the other one that got me sort of into reading on my own like roald Dahl was always read to me as i was sort of learning how to read myself and uh yeah enid blighton was definitely the one i moved on to next yeah gateway drugs the pair yes, of very much so. gateway <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um when you went <laughs> at what stage did you move on to the hard stuff um <laughs> yeah why not in a, in a literary sense um you know because you're, you're writing psychological fiction now yes uh what was you know later on in your life you know prior to you having this opportunity to, to actually get your book written and published 
what were the who were the authors that that took you from Roald Dahl through to where you are now? Um, really, it probably started with sort of the Martina Cole era because uh, my my mum is a voracious reader, and the house was always full of books, and we went to the library every single week, and she she gave me her love for it. Um, and sort of even as a young teenager, I wanted to read what she was reading. I I was fed up with sort of more teenage type stuff that was all sort of romance and things like that. I wasn't interested. I liked the dark stuff. You know, I, I enjoyed watching all the true crime documentaries. I enjoyed, um, would have been maybe the early Revises mm-hmm. that were starting to come out. Um, and that just interested me. That fascinated me. So I read that all the way through sort of teenager teenager years and um, sort of started trying my hand at my own kind of like just little crime things sort of from the age of about 14, 15. Right. Um, just, just trying to get a bit of a voice, really. Yeah. I mean, did how difficult was that at 14, 15, you know, writing stuff? And and because um, that's a pretty self-conscious age, isn't it? And I, I certainly when I was doing did a bit of dabbling with that at the time, I would always uh, find myself writing in the style of whoever I was reading at the time and then yes. recognising that. Was that yeah. something that you experienced? Yeah, very much so. It wasn't something that I ever shared with anybody. It was a very personal thing. Um, I was your very typical sports person at school. Um, So I was off playing hockey and rugby and anything else that I could sort of get involved in. So I wasn't the sort of person that I think even now, I'm not the sort of person people expect to be a writer. Um, A lot of people are still quite surprised, um, either, either when they meet me or having known me for quite a long time. Um, and it was just never something that I kind of discussed widely, like my family knew and sort of very, very close friends. But apart from that, it was very much a sort of personal journey that I, I it was just something that I felt compelled to do and couldn't really imagine not doing, even though it it wasn't, you know, t- for a particular reason, there was no sort of long-term aim, especially not at that time. It was just... I, I wanted to get those words down and I wanted to see how it developed sort of the more I practised. Mm. So were people surprised then when you did start writing uh, during lockdown? Were they surprised? Uh, yes, usually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, most, I'd say most people that I go to the pub with or go out with hadn't a clue that I'd ever written, that <laughs> it was ever a name. So uh, yes, people were very, very surprised when, uh, I mean, I was very happy to sit in the garden and have a glass of wine whenever anybody asked but for the first time yeah I was I was sat at the laptop um my husband and I just bought a house at the time um and it was the first time he'd seen me in sort of full writing mode because I hadn't done much for a few years at that point um so in, in the start of our relationship I wasn't really writing at all and even though he knew I was sort of a reader mm. I don't think he'd realized just how serious I was about it so were you reading stuff to him at the time? You know, no, look no, at he what still I've done. he still hasn't read it. He's not. He's, he hasn't read really? it. Really? No. But you know, that's not that unusual. I, it's not. A lot of people say that, don't they? That, that yeah. their near, very nearest and dearest, almost just either don't want to because you know it's quite hard to read something created by the person you live with because oh, I think it's I think it you know. It can be quite difficult. Or they just they don't read that genre, so it's that's my thing. It's not his genre. Yeah, it just um I think it was more if I'd have asked him to, I think he would have done. Um, but because it's not a genre he reads at all, 
um I, I, I kind of left it left him alone really and uh, yeah the only uh, the only bit he's read is the dedication to him in book two which has caused great hilarity throughout the world as it, as he intended <laughs> my mother was horrified when she opened that book and read the dedication right. were you gonna tell us then? Gonna tell i will tell you it. hang on yeah let, let's hear it let me grab it off the shelf And he did write this himself. This was the only part he played. So <laughs> let me find it. I love it. Oh, it's actually finding it now. Oh, yeah. Well, there we go. Uh, to my fiancé, Lee, who was absolutely no fucking help at all in the process of this book, but did write his own dedication. <laughs> and then I thought, I better put something nice, because I had to check with my editor whether this was allowed. <laughs> so, And then I ended it with Love You Forever to Versailles and back. So... Uh, <laughs> But yes, when well, my mother dedication ever, I love it. Every bit of feedback I've received from this book, it has mentioned that dedication, so it makes his day. I have to tell him every time somebody he, mentions the dedication. He's actually quite famous just yeah. through that. Then, <laughs> yeah. I did, That's sort of an idea. I, I, well, I, I'm just going to ask because I see it's also in audio. This is what we did. Your second book. Yes, what we did. Yeah. Um, did the dedication get yeah, read by the narrator? The narrator read that because I tend not to do the dedications. I, I, I don't think it did. No, no, I'd be no, surprised. I don't think well, it did. In, a, in a way, this should be an exception, shouldn't it? Because yeah. <laughs> I probably should have insisted on it actually if I thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> Missed an opportunity. That well, was brilliant. That is fantastic. Yeah. I have to do a compendium of dedications. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got I've got to up the bar each time now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're we're talking about your two books to date. Uh, Believe me, not was your first. Mm-hmm. Now the speed between. From emerging from a lockdown and getting it in front of an agent, signed up by an agent and then published is by a big publisher uh, as well, is extraordinary, really, I think. Um, you know, these things tend not to go as quickly as they did for It you. was a dedication. Well, probably. <laughs> but I think the other, um, I mean, let's at this point sort of mention that uh, you took a course during lockdown as well yes. with Curtis Brown. And yeah. that is really interesting just how powerful that has become because you wouldn't be the first person we've spoken to who's gone through their hands and really found them incredibly valuable and that's quite something to say because there are a lot of courses out there that don't necessarily deliver the goods but this one seems to have done yes um there's so many authors i speak to that have done a curtis brown course at some point their their reach is enormous and what they provide even as such a massive literary agency, their their reach is unparalleled, I suppose. And um, the the course that I did was led by Erin Kelly, who was one of the authors that I read while I was writing, believe me not. And um, Michelle Davis was the reader for the course, and I loved Michelle Davis's um, Family Liaison series. I thought that was amazing. Um, so just the opportunity to have that sort of industry insider knowledge yeah. was invaluable and uh, uh, the other authors I've spoken to about the courses have all said the same so the benefit of a course like that uh is is what is it the the things that it reveals that you need to strengthen or is it a question of just giving you the confidence to go for it um I think it was very much what needed to be strengthened and what the not so much the recipe to success was, but certainly what you needed to consider that potentially you hadn't considered before because I'd not really done anything 
like this. I joined Jericho Writers during lockdown yeah. and did their yeah. summer festival of writing. That was really, really helpful as well. Um, but Curtis Brown just seems to drill so much deeper into sort of the structure, the characterization, the hooks, um, and things that I don't think I'd necessarily have been able to learn just from picking up a book. It was that the way it was instructed and the way it was explained and the examples used from Erin's own books, um, I found that worked very much for me on the way the way I learn. Wow, I mean that that you know that depth is is it's quite something because as you say, I mean I probably got a collection that you you'd be able to vouch for this. Yeah, of my. How to write uh, books, books. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'll pick anything up that I haven't seen before. If I'm in yeah. foils on the rare occasions or wherever, and I see something that, that could add to that library, it gets added. And mm-hmm. I've got probably 50 or 60, I would think, by now. Actually, yes. today he went to Telford shopping looking for shoes, and he told me he avoided Waterstones on purpose. Oh, well done. I mean, that's <laughs> that's always... That's a, it's well, very I, difficult. I, I, yeah, it's the first time ever, I think. To I'm not very proud of you. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's uh, certain things come out of those books, and I think some are very good for you know plot devices and structure, mm-hmm. but nothing ever. Um, but they're very generic in a, in yes. a way. They, they're, they're too broad stroked, and so having people with that experience going in granular detail into your work mm. must be, yeah, is it, it is it must be quite frightening though isn't it at the beginning yeah um I think I was more excited than anything else this is this is an opportunity I've wanted my entire life and I, I think before lockdown I'd probably reached the stage that I thought it, it may never happen now I've, I've tried twice before and I, th- I think I did say to myself if believe me not doesn't get picked up then i we're going to call it a day. So it was, it was, an, it was opportunity more than anything else. And just that opportunity to, to learn and to, to grow as an author in a way that I'd not, I, that this is what made me realize why the first two attempts have been unsuccessful. And I saw what I hadn't done and what I hadn't developed and what didn't work. And it's a completely different insight when you're looking at it from somebody else's perspective in the industry and mm. just having the opportunity to actually learn what somebody else's perspective is was invaluable. Mm. If you were to sum up the sort of the key learning point to share with other people listening to this, what would it be? Um, I'd say taking those opportunities to grow your own voice and your own style while still learning the the structures that you are going to need. Um, having almost like a map set out for you, showing you what you need to meet. And they're not always as obvious as you think they are. Um, Writing to me has always felt like a very natural thing. It's never felt like something that can be sort of taught from scratch. It's, It's something that can be developed, that can be learned, that can be improved. But it always felt like something that you, you can, or you can naturally do that just needs to be polished. And it was that polish that, hadn't clearly hadn't happened before um but what it had done was let me find a voice that worked for me so the previous ones that I thought at the time this is my voice it wasn't and it wasn't until Jericho um Curtis Brown etc started showing me their methods and their processes 
that for the first time I think I understood how, what I could become. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, that is, it must be amazing that feeling of the scales falling away from your eyes. Yes. Uh, yeah. It was, there was, there were some um, courses, some um, discussions that I left just feeling like the 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 world had changed on its axis as I, I finally get it i finally understand and there's a working example of it and I swear, the example is probably the most valuable thing because every author's gone through through this stage where every author's had to develop their process and develop their voice so but actually hearing it from them it all it all just made sense for the probably for the first time yeah isn't that it's fascinating so uh i mean you complete the manuscript and you you picked up an agent pretty quickly. Did you get the agent before the, the book deal? Was no. It, oh, sorry. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Again, I I wasn't really sure how long the process would take. I think uh, because I'd gone through it twice before and re- with the second one, I really was in it for the long haul. Um, and really, I didn't know when to stop at that point. I, I should have said enough's enough, but I didn't. I kept going and, so this time around, I kind of had a cutoff point of, I think I'd said 20 agents I'd submit to. And if they all came back as no's, I'd step away and revise, um, send out a few more beta readers, maybe even do another course and try and approach it in a more professional way. Mm. Which, again, was really lacking the first two times. I was I was just young, you know, and just desperately trying to make it and no no plan to it, no structure to it. Whereas this time there was a plan, there was a structure. I knew what I was going to do if those first 20 didn't come back. And for the first time, um, they started coming back asking for falls. And mm-hmm. that that blew my little mind. Like the first fall request I got absolutely blew my mind. Um, but one thing I did that was amazing was the agent one-to-ones mm. that Jericho was offering. And I'd yep. never I'd never spoken to an agent before. And that was when I was terrified. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's don't they of scary people? <laughs> I was so scared. They were lovely. There was one I won't name her, um, but I'm incredibly grateful to her, and she absolutely ripped my opening pages apart. <laughs> really? And yeah, absolutely tore them apart. The first, the original, believe me not, opening scene. And I came away from that, and I thought, right, I'm either going to let this really sting, or I'm going to take what a massive positive that this busy, successful, massive agent has taken the time to actually show me what is wrong and how to fix it. Mm. And so I went away and I, I made the changes that she, she suggested and then did my second lot of 10 and the difference that made. So I've, yeah, I've, yeah. I've not met her in person yet, but I'm hoping I will do it at, at one of the um, publishing parties one day because I really do want to thank her. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, definitely you have to. That's, that's... That, that is fantastic to hear. And, it, you know, actually setting my mind whirring as to <laughs> what do we need to know that we don't so far as publishers? Well, I don't know. I mean, agents, they're, they're very smart people. Well, they? <laughs> yes, yeah. they're very smart people. They know what works and they deal with, you know, dozens and dozens of authors yes. they sign, but hundreds and thousands of, of of people trying to get through the doors as well oh, so, they have to be quick don't they they have mm, to make that, very, judgment isn't very, that very fascinating quickly. yeah and i think that you know what you're saying about always growing and always learning is very important for a writer but i think it's also true for everybody in the publishing industry you cannot you know something will catch you out 
that yes. some book will that you turn down if potentially That's as an agent or, or a commissioning editor yeah, yeah. I think could be it, the one that becomes you know the next well dare i say it 50 shades but you know what i mean no don't say that, <laughs> Let's no, not no. Say that. there are plenty of better books than that we're not we're not ready for that no fair enough fair enough <laughs> and um i mean to to sort of bring your story through to the point where you get published so you got picked up by headline accent which is a really big commercial publisher fantastic um to be picked up by them for two yeah. books and which are now out so what was that experience like um i mean you gained a lot from from meeting experienced agents and lots yes. of input from people and indeed your own agent yeah um but then you've got to deal with the whole publishing process <laughs> and dealing with a you know with an with an organization and building those relationships how was that for you i suppose as a debut you go in not knowing a lot um, I tried to, um, Phoebe Morgan actually has a brilliant blog um, that at le- having sort of done a bit of research and read um, particularly some of her posts, I didn't go in completely blind. So thank you, Phoebe, as Phoebe's brilliant in um, opening up the world. So we're not going in completely blind. We don't sound like complete blithering idiots when we start, but it's still a massive learning curve. And the it's it's the jargon that's the hardest. So you know this this acronym will get thrown at you, and you sort of nod and go yes, and then afterwards ring my agent going what's happening. And that that was pretty much the whole of the first structural edit. Um, didn't know how to use track changes in Microsoft Word. I'd never worked with it before. <laughs> um, so you know, and you're just nodding away, going yes, of course I can do that. Yes, I understand. Yes, that'll be brilliant. And then get off the phone with, with the editor and immediately ring Liza and go, I don't understand anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that yeah, that was um that was quite an experience. But from editing the first book, um, believe me not the debut, I think it only required one structural and one line edit. It was really quick. That um, is quick. it yeah. was really quick. And that's massively thanks to Liza because we worked on it for a couple of months before it went out on sub. Um, Liza DeBlanc, my agent at Mushrooms Entertainment, um, she explained to me that she's really hands-on editorially, which which was brilliant because um, her vision for the book was very similar. Um, we were we were always on the same page for what needed strengthening and what needed developing and what needed tweaking. Um, so that structural edit, line edit, and then it went off to the copy editor, and um, it was it, it in my own experience, very limited experience. It was very smooth. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's terrific. Now, in terms of the subject matter of that first book, uh, believe me not, um, about, you know, your main character is Megan, isn't it? Yes. Um, wakes up in hospital, baby's gone missing. And um, in your professional life, outside of the writing, you are working in the mental health sphere. So how much does that impact on what you write and how you deal with those emotional and mental crises that someone like Megan's must be facing? I, I suppose it's... The, the psychology of it really interests me. The the inner workings of the mind really interests me professionally and um, personally. Um, in terms of the psychosis that Megan suffered, I had absolutely zero knowledge about it, zero experience of it. Um, my best friend's a midwife, and she was good enough to put me in touch with her midwife's group. Um, and a couple of them had actually dealt with um, psychosis patients, and they... Um, were really good given the time and answering all my 
ridiculous questions that popped up <laughs> during the course of it but I was determined that the research had to be done right it had to be accurate it yeah. couldn't just be fudged mm. um and I, I learned so much because I, I don't have children I have cockapoos um who may be more difficult I'm not sure but, <laughs> um, but it um so it, it was never coming sort of from a personal perspective in fact it was a perspective that really I had very little understanding of um, which was why I needed those professionals to to make sure I was going along the right lines with it, really. But presumably, because of your 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 training and the, the sort of sensitivity, some of the work that you do day to day, you were in a position to have those conversations um, in a way that was empathetic and you know well structured whereas you know i think a lot of authors who would like to write psychological fiction wouldn't know where to start yeah like if you were to you know if they don't have that 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 background it's you know yeah if i were to do it i'd be like you know elephant in a china shop wouldn't i I mean disaster but it but you know what i mean it's 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 you're you're to 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 draw those life stories from people who've gone through this is quite a challenge Yes, I suppose it might be. Um, in a lot of ways, we had quite a common language, um, not so much from the the medical background, but from the psych- um, psychology, the mental health background. Um, so we weren't starting on sort of hugely different levels, which made it a lot easier to sort of extract the information that I needed, um, just because I could refer quite a lot to the training that I've done in um, behavioural education. Um, so that yeah, that definitely made it easier. And for book two, it was obviously a lot easier because it was a background that I know inside out and was very comfortable with. Um, so the, yeah, the research for book two was a lot easier than the research for book one. Right. And in terms of um, one of the things that always makes me um, a question I always have, I suppose, when I when I see the the plethora of titles within this genre mm-hmm. dealing with with these sort of things. Um, now we have a we have some authors who have uh, a background in in uh, in that sphere. So write with authenticity and and um, with uh, knowledge. But quite a lot of people, I think, plunge into it thinking, right, my character's going to have X. I'm going to give them this phobia. I'm going to give them that syndrome. And they don't have the medical background. They don't have the the the, the experience. Uh, does that worry you? Do you have you ever sort of picked up one of these and thought this really is off beam? It's not. Well, they haven't done their research. Yeah, it doesn't feel right. I'm trying to think. I've had the the books that I tend, if I'm ever not going to finish one, tends to be the ones set in schools, universities. Um, most people think that they know exactly how schools work because everybody's been to a school, <laughs> and they yeah. think they all know and. There, there have been a couple that I've had to put down and go, there's no way in living hell this would ever have happened or been allowed to happen. Or um, I suppose it's the processes of from your own professional background, you know what isn't isn't yeah. possible. And of, of course, you've got to take artistic license. I mean, I've I've done the same. I've I've pushed a couple of boundaries, but I hope I've never strayed into the realms of sheer disbelief. Mm. Um, same with any police characters or any police um, procedure that I need to use. Um, I always check. Is it if it's not possible? Can we sort of tweak it so at least you know a detective's not going to read it and throw it across the room in rage? <laughs> <laughs> but I can't. I can't think of one off the top of my head in terms of sort of the psychology background mm. that I've I've sort of looked and gone. There's no way. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, it's just it's just at my back of my mind because I know that whenever I read something that I'm 
experienced in or know what of mm-hmm. and it goes wrong then i'm taken out of the story immediately well yesterday yes. when we, we were watching newsroom which is a bbc um well, abc australia production that's been on the bbc yeah, so, newsreader, the and, newsreader and uh the, the newsreader was just about to go on air and he just walked onto the to set didn't he and you sat there and you said that would never happen i would be really <laughs> cross if my newsreader walked on with 10 seconds to go yeah it happened every episode they seem to walk in with 20 seconds to go um you know because my background's working with the bbc and uh there was one presenter quite a famous one that i worked with a former strictly winner no less who would do this to wind us up and would appear at the last possible moment or angela rippon no it wasn't angela it was chris hollins <laughs> i know <laughs> chris hollins and he he was a you know he was a bit of a cheeky chappy sort of hugh grant kind of character in a way um, and i produced him closely for years but he he would always do things like on a saturday night we'd have a curry in the office and he would only with like two seconds just as the microphone was going live finish his last mouthful yeah. Or dab away, you know, the, the stains That's around his... you got so mad watching the TV last night. Yeah. It was like a... Well, it, was, it was one of those things where I would absolutely, you know, I don't want to use the word bollock, but I, I would go absolutely mental, if that's the right word in this context. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whoever, sorry, you know, if the presenter did that, because the whole gallery team, <laughs> so we're talking about the director, the sound person, the timing person, the you know, all those, and the camera people, they'd all go absolutely ape afterwards well, because they were all uh, very tense where yeah. are they yeah and it's just not on <laughs> yeah you don't need <laughs> I, any I, more stress I've in that situation. A monster. i'm really sorry <laughs> <laughs> but also my mum she used to work because she was um a nurse when we watched casualty in fact i'd turn it off because we'd be sat there and she'd say that would never happen that nurse yeah. can't do that that doctor wouldn't do that and i'd say oh for god's sake it's just tv mother just watch it and enjoy yeah. it yeah, I'm I'm exactly the same if I'm watching um oh I can't even think what the program's called. There's uh, Waterloo Road. Yeah, oh great. Yeah. You love that, don't you, love? I know, but that's school. I mean, really. I mean, I've been a governor and nothing like all the things they go through within one week. I mean, I've I've taught at a London school that was not dissimilar, but then when I watch their procedures, I'm like, that's exactly why. <laughs> <laughs> what about um educating uh they've had education Essex. Yorkshire, Essex, Manchester? I yeah, I, um, I knew quite a few of the people on Educating Essex that I'd um, worked with at various times. So, yeah, they they are really, really accurate, to be fair. They yeah. made me cry, those programmes. They made me feel a little one bit teacher, better. And he had, like, an infection on his leg or something, yet he still oh, insisted yeah, yeah. on working. And yeah, I was he, thinking, he was a good one. I wanted to say, go home. Just go home and put your feet up and rest. You're going to make yourself really ill. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a really good series, actually. I'm hoping they'll do another one soon because it does make me feel a lot better about my working life. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure the ambulance crews watching ambulance will fall the same way. I think it's amazing. I think they are amazing. Anyway, um, in terms of your career to date, so you've got your two books, had your two book deal. That's yep. they're out now. Yeah. Where are you with things? You've got more to come. Um, there there will be more to come from me. I'm not allowed to say anything at the moment. Oh, uh, yes, I've got to do. I've got. I, I got to do a vague publishing tweet, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um. <laughs> So no, I'm unfortunately I'm not allowed to um, share anything at the moment, but there will there will be more coming from me, um, probably not not next year, um, right. but 2025. Keep, keep your eyes peeled for oh, uh, really? the channel. Oh, you'll have to come back on the podcast then. Absolutely. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. 
I'm I'm looking forward to the uh, to the bookseller saying so and so swoops. Yes, yes. Uh, I get swooped in the bookseller. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> snare. And, and we all know snare. there can't be a deal unless you're in the bookseller. No, no, exactly. It's, no. It's the bookseller. What do you call it? Something of shame, like the Daily Mail. Well, the, the Daily Mail has a sidebar of shame on Daily yeah. Mail online. It's the bookseller email of shame, then, isn't it? Because if you subscribe yeah. to the bookseller, you get the daily emails. Yes, yeah, and it you does do. say, um, I don't know. Hachette swoops Richard, yeah. Uh, Hammond's annexes car book. <laughs> yeah, if I get if I get a swoop, I know I've made it. Yeah, well, look, that's fantastic to hear. That, yeah, that's uh, that's terrific. And and Thank you. You, you you describe yourself. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll get to the random question very shortly. But um, yourself as a pantser. So has that yes. changed as a result of the impact that you had and the input you had? Not in the least. Um, okay. I did try. I thought, no, I'm going to, in my, in my other working life, I'm very organized. I'm very um, focused, very detailed. And I'm like, right, we're going to try and apply this. And book two was hell. Trying to get book two written because I was trying to plot. And uh, it turns out I can't plot. Um, whenever I try, um, I can't remember who I was, I was talking to another author about this not so long ago. And all it does is distract me from what I'm doing. I get so caught up in trying to figure out what's going on that I, the characters don't react right and yeah. their their reactions are all wrong their psychology goes wrong and it, I think my agent from book two when we finally managed to get it ready to go to my editor I think she was ready to tear her hair out <laughs> and um when I um started on a new project and I said I'm I've no idea how it's going to end I don't know I will find out when I get there and I think she was actually quite relieved <laughs> there was no plotting done so no I've tried um, I've even asked um, a couple of other uh, Mushrooms authors for their plotting advice and they've been kind enough to do a sort of a full walkthrough with me and um, I wrote the first post-it note and went, no. It's interesting, isn't it? We have this idea that plotting is better than pantsing, I think. Well, it comes across as more organised, doesn't it? It seems like, yeah. you know, I am, I am now a professional author. I am, I have this bestseller tag, which I <laughs> must admit I'm very attached to. Um, yeah. And there's an expectation that you're supposed to know what you're doing now. So um, you know you've got to you've got to produce this pitch, and um, you're supposed to know how it ends. And like, I never have a clue how it's going to end. <laughs> I like that. That's I, I, that will be a warm glow for a lot of people who <laughs> who you know because I mean it's it's kind of fifty fifty with the people we speak to, and clearly there are a lot of authors who are who are incredibly successful indie authors who are publishing mm-hmm. books very very quickly. Who have to have a plan, yes, yeah. to, to to achieve those numbers uh, in terms of the number of books they release each year. But for the rest of us, and I'm with you on the pantsing side of things. If it's not organic, it's not right for me. That's same, work. yeah. I have massive admiration for plotters. Oh yeah. Uh, how reassuring must it be to know what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, I was I was just doing a chapter today on a, another work in progress, and the chat in the uh, an event happened in the chapter. I was like, oh didn't know that was going to happen (laughs) and that's where that's where my buzz comes from yeah and that's and that's such a pleasure isn't it when you get you know that that burst of wow yeah where did that come from that keeps you going for the rest of the day yeah Yeah, so your your characters are telling you the story yeah completely they're they're in charge not me i just Mm. i'm just the organic thing putting my fingers on the keyboard yeah that's it Right. Well, okay. Well, this is kind of um, the the 
podcasting version of pantsing i suppose in the sense that you don't know what's coming nor do i no, yeah, it is, it's, it's and, and sometimes i think rebecca doesn't know what she's about to say but anyway this is, this is the okay. first one i've done sort of completely unprepared like usually i have a list of questions that i can make some notes on and know what i'm going to blither on uh, well, no, we, we, we believe very strongly in just being organic and 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 following following up on points that people make and and just, just having a the flow, having yeah. a proper yeah. conversation so uh, but at this point, there is this formality that we have to go through, which is Rebecca's random question. It's Christmas soon. What is your favourite Christmas song and why? <gasps> right, I forgot to be Fairy Tale of New York, and no, it's not because of Shane. Fairy Tale of New York gives me goosebumps every time I hear it, and it's that magic of New York, that freezing, freezing cold night, and then you get sort of the Irish influence and you can imagine you're in Dublin at the bar and I, I can never ever hear that song without smiling it just it is pure Christmas even though it's the most melancholy thing you could ever listen to it's got such feeling and it's got such emotion I I love it too and I like it because they're quite angry at each other aren't they yes. and it's, it's not just jolly jolly snow happy no. happy let's have a party it's, it's so much though. more authentic, isn't it? And Kirsty McCall's well, yeah. just such a legend. It's got a fabulous narrative to it. I mean, yes, it's it one of the great. If it was a poem, it would be amazing. But now, you know, with the the aggression of Kirsty McCall's comebacks and yeah, and the fact that now we have lost them both. Yeah, was, yeah, they're singing in heaven. I, yeah. I was thinking this. I was driving yesterday to school, and I've got the Christmas music on because it's December. I'm allowed now, and that did come on, <laughs> so... and I thought they're singing together now. And how are still arguing? Yeah. still arguing. You could see Kirsty McCall glaring at him over the piano. He has the same birthday as me, I found out. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Christmas yeah. Day. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Trust wow. Me. Now that's that's a point of interest, isn't it? It's a difficult one to balance. But we, we had a big row yes. in this household this week because I said to, to my boys, I was taking them to school and I said, not all Christmas songs are about Christmas, are they? And I thought that was a fairly uncontroversial thing to say because there are some songs that come on or on these now Christmas CDs that don't actually mention Christmas. Mm-hmm. And one of my boys said, that's not right. It can't be a Christmas song. If it isn't about Christmas or snow or winter, it can't be a Christmas song. And I kind of agree with that because you were including songs that have been made famous by John Lewis adverts, which don't talk about Christmas. So, Lily uh, Allen. Oh. No, so and, I don't think I love Smiths, that song. please, please let me get what I want is in any way okay. a Christmas song. But he goes to Hollywood, relevant, Power though. of Love. That's, there's so much of a Christmas in Yeah, but the video had the three wise men and the star and all that. There was a nativity. They about Christmas, do they? No, okay, all yeah, right. Yeah, I suppose Lily Allen had its, its bed and... Uh... Yeah, so I love, I really see that makes me. I haven't told you what my favourite Christmas song oh, is. Oh, sorry, what is your favourite Christmas song? Oh, that's very easy. It's mistletoe and wine. No, you, no, it's not. Yeah. No, it's not. No, it's not. He's winding you up. Come on, <laughs> I, seriously. I, I hate Christmas songs. No, I know you do. But you must have a favourite. No, I don't no, really. No, I mean, you know, well, no, no, um, no. I'd probably, you know, Fairy Tale in New York. I don't. I wouldn't switch it off, which is more than I can say. For <laughs> I mean, most that's a compliment. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I struggle with it. I mean, it's, yeah, and it's amazing. Um, actually, one, one. What about? Um, the Bing Crosby David Bowie duet of Little Drummer Boy. Boy. <laughs> yeah, which was done for a Christmas special and then Bing promptly disappeared off our, off the earth. Uh, that one. I quite like oh, that one. yes, yes, yes. I know what you mean. 
Yeah. And then the same happened to Mark Boland when David Bowie appeared on his special. He died a week later. So, you know. Well, I, I like the foggy one with Paul McCartney and the Kermit. Uh, the frog chorus. <laughs> no, not Kermit. I managed to Rupert avoid that one. Oh, I, I like Rupert. Not a massive fan of Kermit, but I do like Rupert. I it's Kermit in it? I think I made no, that up. Not, no, 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 it's no. The frog, so lily pads. It's the frog chorus, love. That's what it's called. I think Kermit. I must have missed that one. In it. I yeah. might have to go and Google. Yeah. Uh, watch the video it's really cute I think it's I might need to it's got Rupert the Bear and it's got all these animated frogs and <laughs> Adrian's dumb now yeah this is it this is this is probably the last podcast we'll ever do at this rate oh you said <laughs> that every week I know I know <laughs> it, Natalie it's been a, a huge pleasure to speak to you and I tell you what we've we've taken so much positive energy from it as, as much as anything but also some wonderful um, you know guidance and some tips and some encouragement, I think, for a lot of people who listen to this podcast who aspire to be, you know, published authors too. So thank you for that. Oh, that's um, great to hear. Where can people find you online? I know you're busy on Twitter quite a lot. Um, I, I try to be. I'm, I'm terrible with social media. Mostly it's pictures of cockapoos. Um, <laughs> I I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram. Um, I could tell you my handles, um, maybe. Um, I'll tell you I what, it's... I will put them on I will put them on the, the, the page. <laughs> I'm trying to remember I, th- I think Twitter I'm Natalie C underscore author. I think. But um yes, you, if you if uh, Natalie Chandler and uh, I will pop up. Yeah, if if you Google Natalie Chandler author, you do pop up because I did yes. that today. <laughs> yeah, I, I do have a website that my IT professional husband is working on, but it's a, a, he assures me it's a work in progress. Ah, so um yeah, weird. we may yeah. yes, we may we may have one at some point. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us. We wish thank you, you very um, much. as we've mentioned Christmas already, might as well say happy Christmas ahead of time. Yes, we might uh, as well. So we look forward to speaking to you again thank when you very much. the big news yeah. breaks. <laughs> yes, I will let you know. I, I will not be quiet about it. I'm not very quiet to start off with, but I will be extra, extra loud at that moment. That's how you should be. <laughs> thank you. Really enjoyable chat, that. Yes, it was. I, I love it. I love talking to people I've never met before and I don't know anything about their story really except, you know, a few mm. snippets and just going in some direction, random direction that you don't expect. Yeah, topped off with a random question. Okay, uh, we have a guest next week. We do. Um, a lady called um, Helen Matthews, another writer of psychological um, suspense fiction. So I don't know her journey yet. We'll see. Okay. That would be lovely to speak to her. Okay, we uh, have had a, you know, what a... What sort of week have we had? You've had a really choppy week with lots of interruptions, I think, and things to do. And... Um, have I had interruptions? I can't remember. I, I've it feels been, like it. I've been, I've been very, very busy. Um, all good stuff. All, you know, all the, the Hobeck and the freelance stuff. Um, I've actually quite enjoyed it um, this week. And then... Um, this weekend we had a very rare night out didn't we we did we decided to um make you know have a christmas party at Hobart, which <laughs> is sorts, just the yeah. two of us we went to manchester uh and we bought each other tickets to see johnny marr who is our favorite yeah performer. we both separately as we were teenagers and um into our sort of early 20s as well both discovered the smiths and then carried on uh, being very fond of johnny marr and his guitar um and yes yeah, so it's like a mutual mm. thing we both we absolutely love and so yeah well the, the, it's the second the, time we've seen johnny marr together yes it is yeah i think it's the fourth time i've been but um 
it was a special occasion because there's a new venue in Manchester called the Aviva Studios, and it is absolutely monumental what they've done. So it's the home of Factory International, who run the Manchester International Festival, has sort of slight sort of uh, heritage with the people who used to run the Hacienda and run Factory Records and all that thing. But it's um, it's a tenuous link. And some of the styling of the place is a little bit... There's, there's hints of the mm. Hacienda added in. But what it is is an incredibly expensive place um, they've built. 200 million quid it's cost. And it is down on the site of the old Granada Studios, um, down near the River Irwell and the uh, the railway lines through centre Manchester, uh, very close to the Museum of Science and Industry. And it has two principal venues. One's the Hall, which is a 2,000-seater. But then standing is the warehouse, 5,000 capacity. And it is... A cathedral. It's a rectangle, but it's cathedral height. I can't remember how many meters it is. Yeah, but it's well, absolutely you, you huge. said it was about thirty people standing on each other. Yeah, I think it's something like forty meters high from floor to ceiling, which you know, in a venue like that, is absolutely colossal. And it is incredible in terms of what they've done in terms of investing in the acoustics and the lighting and the whole way it works and the fact that you can have 5,000 people pressed in to, next to each other and not actually any of us break sweat because the aircon is so good. Yeah. Um, I it, do, I, yeah, I wasn't conscious. But the sound conscious. was ab- absolutely amazing. And it was Johnny Marr playing with an orchestra. Yes, I wasn't conscious of the other people at all. In fact, if yeah. I, it, it's a really strange thing to say maybe, but I almost felt like I was on my own, even though I was obviously surrounded by people. Yeah, I mean, it felt like Johnny was playing to you individually because the the acoustics are that good. Mm. And, and the uh, emotion that you felt from the music. Yeah, yeah, and, and, you know, rather than it being a bolt-on orchestra, it felt like all the songs, the Smiths and all his individual stuff and the stuff he did with electronic, felt as if they'd been written with the orchestra all the time. Yeah, that um, was, it's quite, a, quite something, that. I, I recommend if you get a chance to hear How Soon Is Now played with an orchestra... Uh, you know, which is a guitar classic. Uh, it was amazing. Yeah. Um, really and that, fantastic. And and also the fact that everybody was singing along to many of these songs, it it just felt that you just felt the emotion of all yeah. the people in the um Yeah, the I think building. a lot of people coming away from that gig saying it was the best they'd ever been to. Yeah, and, I did. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, I would, it, in many ways it it was the most satisfying experience. So yeah, that was that a was li- good. That was a good. I mean, it was you know, a sort of Christmas party. We should uh, we should just mention quickly our journey home because that was um, <laughs> not quite so. Well, uh, you lovely. know, the train strikes bit, um, and there have been rolling strikes from Aslef this week, where different train companies were affected, and of course they picked Friday to have a strike for the Northern trains and also Trans Pennine. So. I hadn't anticipated that there would be no trains coming out of Manchester Piccadilly <laughs> to Stockport because normally you can count on the West Coast mainline trains and indeed cross-country trains to do that, but they don't run that late. So we're in a, we try, I, I was in, I don't like standing up for long periods. My legs tend to give out and I was barely able to walk when we left the venue and we hit the centre of Manchester, which is Deansgate. And it's Friday night before Christmas the Christmas markets are in operation. It was bedlam, and the place was gridlocked. And I think there was there was a Chanel 
Chanel, no, exactly, exactly, Chanel fashion show with all the supermodels in Manchester, believe it or not. Um, and that's which, why everyone was so tall and good looking. Possibly. <laughs> but it, uh, it added to it. So we got in a cab and I said, let's take us to Piccadilly. And we got about 15 yards in 10 minutes. The, the amount the money was racking up and we were going in the wrong direction. And um, he said, are you sure your train's running? And then the checks and Julie, they weren't. So we had to think of alternative ways to get back to my dad's place outside Stockport. And um, eventually a tram to East Didsbury. And then with the last vestiges of battery power an uber uh came and rescued us and took us home yeah um, so we, we got we got back about um quarter past one didn't no, it doesn't we? sound that dramatic but it felt it was know, cold it was and we were tired it was wet and yeah. we were worried and you know yeah okay we, and i was we, carrying we an enormous book johnny mars guitars you were <laughs> i'm not supposed to know about that because it's for christmas i think you did know you were there yeah. okay um so yeah bit of drama so this week, um, plenty of work on. Uh, I just finished the trilogy of uh, audiobooks for Zuntold, the Gangster School series. That's sent off, and I'm now moving on to other projects uh, or completing Tony Gartland's um, book, uh, Bodies in the Water, which I've started, and a couple of other things have come along. So plenty of other things to do. But I'm going to be picking up my son from Cardiff, from yes, the university. Yes, at the weekend, yes. And uh, and we've got Luke coming back as well from um, Leeds, I'd think then. Where is he? Leeds. Yeah. And then it's pretty much Christmas. And don't forget, we've got some specials for you. We've recorded two specials, humour in crime fiction and police procedurals with expertise, expertise from our Hobeck <laughs> authors. So, <laughs> expertise? I thought you meant no. like chamomile. <laughs> no, lemon. or, uh, you know, some sort of burlesque with, um, you know, sort of teas. Tease, boobies, you know, what? Well, you know, sort of, yeah. Two T's, like to tease someone. Yes. Oh, is that what the burlesque people do? They well, tease yeah, you. Sort of. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I have no, no experience of burlesques. Okay, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us again on the Hobcast Book Show and joining into our world of madness that is the two of us. Yes. I've been Adrian Hobart. He has, and I've been Rebecca Collins. And we'd like to welcome you again next week. Please join us for uh, the next episode of the Hobcast Book Show by subscribing to the podcast wherever you get them from. And also, uh, we recommend visiting our website, www.hobeck.net, and subscribing to our mailing list. That'd yes, be please wonderful. do. <laughs> so, uh, thank you very much, and we wish you a wonderful and creative week. Bye bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to The Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Spirit.